Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. David, you've been ethereal. You've been nebulous. You've been amorphous. But have you ever been actualized? <laughs> have I ever been actualized? I don't know. I've, 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 I feel like this is the constant uh, refrain <laughs> of my life. Like, just want to be actualized. Yeah. Yeah. When was the last time you felt actualized? I don't think I've ever felt actualized. Oh, okay. I, I, I think that assuming that you were going to reach some kind of goal, some mountaintop, is a, is a false assumption, probably. <laughs> so probably a lot of trouble could have been saved for some people if that realization happened a little earlier in the narrative. Yeah, I just want to be the best me, right, Luke? <laughs> <laughs> yes, today we are concluding our talk on Fargo season two. So this is part two of Fargo season two. So if you're listening to this episode first, um, I guess you probably could, but it might make a little bit more sense thematically to listen to the first episode. Today, we're going to be talking about the characters Peggy and Ed and the whole Gerhardt family, as well as Hansi. So if you're listening to this and you're familiar with the show and you're wondering, Hey, what about all the other main characters that they're not talking about? We addressed them all in part one. Yes. So I would <laughs> recommend listening to that one first. And also, like, in that one, we do a plot rundown of the show and kind of our general feelings. I mean, we're going to wrap up today with some more kind of show specifics that I, I love about Fargo. But if you want to have a slightly deeper dive on our thoughts about the show in general in a build-up. Listen to part one. (laughs) Yes, agreed. And just as a reminder, if you are interested in any of the things that you're hearing us talk about, you can give us a, a, send us an email at reallytruefiction at gmail.com. If you want to subscribe on the Apple iTunes app or iTunes itself or on Spotify, you can do that. Um, If you want to leave a rating or review, that's a really awesome way for new people to find the show and we'd really appreciate it, but obviously no pressure either way. And uh, we're also on Facebook, Really True Fiction, if you want to search the page um, and add it, because we always update there as well when new episodes are released. So, And I know David has once said that we have a Twitter. I have yet to see it. I don't think I've done anything <laughs> on it, so I should probably get on that. But. So for, the, for those who don't know, David is the CIO <laughs> of Really True Fiction, the chief internet officer. Which I have been neglecting my duties on and should probably uh, be pushing out our content. But he's just... Button. he's just. Um, He's he's lucky given the fact that there's no push for any other CIO <laughs> or <laughs> or really, desire on your part or, to be involved in that process or um, just like 
there's no <laughs> compunction for us to be giving that much of a shit about it. <laughs> exactly. So, so that's probably it, not a good the, thing. The neg- negligence of my duties is not being noticed. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. All right. So I guess probably to, to dive right in then. So that little jokey question I asked off the top is obviously a wink and a nod to Peggy Bloomquist, who is one of the main characters. I guess also just narratively, I should point out, I think last episode I said that there are kind of three main factions in the story. I guess probably three and a half would be a better way to put it or three, three, well, four kind of like different areas of storytelling. So like the Gerhards, the Kansas City mob and the cops of Lou, but also the Bloomquist family. Although I kind of put their story in orbit with the cops story, just because they live in the same town as Lou, and they have a lot of interactions in the first few episodes. So they're like the non-criminal, non-cop element yeah. <laughs> of the show. Although they seem to descend into an element of criminality. Well, yeah. <laughs> and I think like Ed seems to get a little bit of strength. Not strength. Um, maybe like accustomed to killing eventually, it seems. <laughs> yes. Unfortunately for yeah. him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because it doesn't go well in the so, end. So yeah. Actually, though, two of the more... Just the, the acting, again, in this show is incredible. And... Both Kirsten Dunst and Jesse Plemons, who play Peggy and Ed, are so good, hey? Oh. Like, it's just incredible how believable they are yeah. in their quirkiness. I, think, I was thinking about this uh, since our last recording, and I think my favorite thing about Fargo is you don't actually have to do much of a suspension of disbelief. Mm, yeah, okay. Uh, because like when you watch interactions, you're like, that totally seems realistic. <laughs> I can see people yeah. doing that. Of course... In the context of extreme violence and UFOs, mm-hmm. that sounds like an odd thing to say. Of course, UFOs only make two appearances, but uh, yeah, I, I love how authentic. I think my favorite television and movies is when actors can so deeply subsume the role mm-hmm. that like that you you see authenticity. In. Yeah, I think we've talked about that in Blue Valentine and yeah. other. Other incredible works by actors, character, mm-hmm. you know, character sketches. And it's very much in the spirit of the Coen brothers to have the characters. I mean, obviously, the Coen brothers didn't write or direct the TV show, but it's inspired by their movie, like we mentioned last time. And one of the great quirks of the Coen brothers in general is the not not even what the dialogue is, but how the actors deliver their lines. It's not as much as in real life but much more than in most movies you hear a lot of stutters a lot of repeats a lot of confusing noises that aren't actually words i mean sometimes when you're watching a movie when the dialogue is so good you're blown away you're like oh man how do i feel so insecure like how do people talk this well i can't talk this well, well they don't talk that well no they, it's <laughs> yeah. a script that is written so that everyone looks smarter than maybe they ever could be it's like basically the smartest version of a really smart person but then spread over all these other people which can be enjoyable <laughs> in in different contexts oh, oh like yeah sorkin films yeah like, oh no no it's, ve- it's very enjoyable yeah but it's but not real it, it's a false sense of how people actually talk to each yes. other yes yes and the Coen brothers have always... I, one of the things I enjoy about the subtext of their films is how the dialogue is brought back down to a little bit more realistic of what people in those situations might be talking. Yeah. So, good example is The Big Lebowski, how the dude talks like a stoner. Yeah. Like, he's such a stoner. He's like, far out. It's, like, it's just yeah, every and line. just like, everything's kind of and, a little bit slower. And it's kind of a Fargoism too, how 
much characters will say what they just said again because they're nervous or they're trying to like not get caught on something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so they just like, well, like I said, you know, it's just over and over and interrupting themselves and not really sure when they start a sentence what they mean. So they cut themselves off halfway through and all the characters do this more or less, but I think Peggy and Ed do it the most. And it's so, it's so it, and like, that's hard to do intentionally. Yes. <laughs> right. Like it's easy to, even when you and I talk on a podcast, we're like, Oh, uh, or we'll oh, interrupt. Okay. Yeah. 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 But to like have to plan that in, I know <laughs> so it's a whole other like, level. Part of your character, or do you is think amazing. they're just doing it like kind of a, a little bit improving? Um, th- well, that would probably help. Yeah, that I would think make it, it would be really easier. hard to. Pl- oh man, yes. if they were planning that and having that degree of authenticity, <laughs> it's like holy. Crap. Yeah, I guess maybe the uh, director's just saying like, look, like just try and mess up three or four times yeah. getting through this line. Yeah, and that's exactly. kind of what we want. Yeah, <laughs> talk normally. Yeah. And so that's what I so enjoy about them. So like, just as a quick sketch, Peggy and Ed are this local couple who live in Laverne, Minnesota, which is the town where the whole narrative kind of gets kicked off at because of the three murders at the Waffle House. And it's Peggy who hits Rye Gerhardt with her car and then takes him to their house instead of taking him to the hospital because Peggy's a weirdo. And they're just kind of like, on the surface, they're this normal couple who live in this normal house and he's a butcher and she's a hairdresser and from the outside they just kind of have like the most basic perfect american life uh they're you know probably early 30s and he wants to start family and so a lot of the tension in their relationship comes from the fact that she's very dissatisfied with her lot and he doesn't understand that yeah, and he's really happy. <laughs> yeah, he's and he's um he's he's the kind of husband that is so interested in giving Peggy what she wants. And the tragedy of the relationship is that she doesn't know what she wants, so she can't communicate to him what she wants. So he feels bereft of any way to help her, and that really hurts him at some deep level. And so I think part of the reason he kills Rye and covers for her and like tries to make it work with her is like in some sense this is how he feels like he can actually help her you know yeah he's been given well it's like there's a tangible problem exactly that yeah he can solve yeah and and yeah. so like that's like a a stand-in for all of the intangible problems he doesn't relate to or understand about peggy because also she doesn't really understand what her problems are either and yet to some degree he doesn't listen to some of the hints that she's giving of what she actually wants like she's constantly talking about california and he just shuts that down Mm -hmm. right it's like no we're not going there this is our life here okay well that's a good segue into peggy because i would i guess uh submit that whether or not ed like maybe ed is not paying enough attention to that that could be fair i think it's a different point though but with peggy she brings up California, but she doesn't really know why she brings up California. Like she would say, because well, that's where we can be actualized, right? right. Like that's her. Right. That's her kind of go to. She just think the it's whole a beautiful show, place, that... a beautiful place where things will be better. And I am submitting, as we, I guess, <laughs> slide into talking about Peggy here. That's her great flaw, right? Like that itself is her great flaw, and it's most obviously kind of wrecks her relationship with Ed. <laughs> But it kind of wrecks her relationship with the world around her. Oh, yeah. Well, and with herself. Yeah. Right? Well, because, like, 
if you haven't seen the show, the setup is she doesn't know that there's been this triple murder. So she just actually hits this guy on the road as he's running on the road. And she doesn't take him to the police or the hospital. She takes him home because she's partly scared. And then she's worried that if they actually, and and then there's a fight and Ed has to kill him. And so now they're scared if they go to the police about anything, she won't get to go to her seminar. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. Which which she cares about. Yeah. Because she is, um, I don't know, I guess, Probably there's something of the era, too, of the 1970s, and I don't mean this in any pejorative sense, like the 1970s feminist kind of ethos was of this, like, I don't know, it seems to me like some sort of era or birth maybe of like the pop psychology movement, and then in the show it's kind of geared towards Peggy as a woman's movement as well, because there's this character Constance who's always talking to her about the seminar in Sioux Falls. and And always like... Being like, oh, you don't need to listen to men, and like, yeah, well, and Constance has a big crush on her, so yeah, that's yeah. that's part of it as well, right? right? And so the kind of craziness of this show is that Peggy is kind of responsible for all the mayhem and death and destruction subsequent, and she can't ever acknowledge it, right? <laughs> right? No, like, yeah, she's she lives in denial of of reality itself almost constantly, and we mm-hmm. see moments where she kind of even goes insane. Yeah. Right. Where she's talking to this. I don't know if it's a real person in the sense of like if it was some guru she's been following or mm-hmm. if it's like it sounds like it's like a like one of those self-help guys. Right. Like the guy who's going to speak her. at the seminar. I don't know if it's the guy that's going to speak at the seminar because remember, she's in the basement mm-hmm. and she's shocked uh, Dodds to like unconsciousness. Oh, yeah. And okay. then she has this weird conversation in her mind. Oh, with some other person right yes and yes. you know and then um ed shows up and he's like who are you talking to and <laughs> and dodd's like i don't know she's gone crazy <laughs> right like, yeah, and he's yeah, like yeah. i know who you are Dodds. like <laughs> <laughs> and he instant shifts right well yeah that's a good fargo joke ism right like, yeah, yeah. dodd is like she's the crazy one <laughs> i might be the horribly violent one but she's, she's the crazy, crazy. Yeah. yeah and we see that she's but then she's like oh i've just had a huge breakthrough mm-hmm. right yeah but she's constantly striving for this weird sense of completeness, mm-hmm. right? Like she feels like she, if she can just reach that point, yeah. then she'll be happy. Meanwhile, she's just living a lie. Like she's, you know, <laughs> telling Ed she wants to have kids and taking birth control. Yeah. Right? And mm-hmm. she's, you know, dreaming. And not, and importantly, psychologically, not having a continuity between those two things. Like she seems like she's working really hard on her dissonance. Yeah. <laughs> And look, she's got like obviously some huge mental health problems. Like she's hoarding all of yeah, these magazines. Like, it looks like, like decades worth of magazines. He doesn't even have a place to sit. Yeah. Right? It's like, well, why am I gonna sit? She's like, Oh, I just organized those, you know, you could sit on that other chair. Yeah, well, funny of a seat is that. Oh, and I love that he shows up and he's like, Oh, is it uh, you know, hamburger helper and <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and tater tots? Oh yeah, okay, that's what we're eating. And yet, she doesn't seem to be malicious in any way towards him, or and she does seem to love him. Mm-hmm. It's just that she's at that weird point in life, I think, where you're kind of given a few choices. You can you can stop dreaming and start start mm-hmm. working, or you can get lost in your own head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think she's a super interesting and really important case to consider when talking about mental health like the 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 intersections of mental health physical reality 
and bridging the gap between what you aspire to be and making sure that you are not ruining your life by doing things now for something greater later that I mean, it's kind of cashed out at the end when Lou is driving her home and she's talking about how she just wanted to be actualized. And he says, people are dead, Peggy. Yeah. <laughs> right? right? Like, it's that mm-hmm. simple of the... And, like, that kind of line of the people are dead, Peggy, is the cold water on her face that she is, at some level, choosing to not look at. Right? Like, she's she's spent this whole show ignoring the fact that dozens of people died because of her actions. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And... She's got like all of these rationalizations for like, oh, my potential. Oh, I was trying to get to somewhere where I can be actualized, right? And so like, just as an aside, there's probably, there's like a reference there to Maslow's um, hierarchy, of, hierarchy need. of needs of the pyramid. Uh, well, and he wrote it as a pyramid of like the basis needs are food, shelter, water, and then one need up is like companionship, relationship, and then there's like mastery and creativity. And the very top, pinnacle of the pyramid is self-actualization which is something like being involved in every facet of your life in something that you know you're on warp speed going through everything you want to be doing and so it's a useful heuristic but she's taking it as a kind of like vibrant metaphysical reality that she just can't quite achieve and if she does achieve she'll be static and perfect the rest of her life right Mm -hmm. and so her entire worldview is based around getting to this point of actualization and it doesn't matter if she hits a guy and then her husband puts him through a meat grinder right and it doesn't matter that now there is a a mob and (laughs) this family trying to kill them because they killed their son right Right. and it doesn't matter that like it's just on and on and on and she's just so she's so in denial so sorry this is a bit rambly but the essence of this is that okay she has a a sadness in her she has a discontent and a dissatisfiedness with the world and i mean emerson's great line discontent is infirmity of the will it is the want of self-reliance and peggy's entire modus operandus of this show is to try and find something external to her to rely on to bring her peace of mind and she's just like, once she's there, it'll be there, right? Yeah. And she has discounted the process of living her own life every day in some way to try and connect with the things that she feels is important in her life. Like, it's just out there and she needs to find it as opposed to in her own being and how to cultivate it. And it's a great story for us, the viewer, because of all of the tragic things that happen as a result of those decisions she makes in a kind of fantasy world, right? Yeah. And so the real life, like, okay, like I don't want to say, hey, don't be aspirational, right? Like don't try and find something that you're going to, you know, quote unquote actualize on. But it, it, the danger is she she shows the example of when it goes too far, yeah. right? Like there there's, yeah. she's gone too far into the goal setting, aspirational. And, and this is the category of the pop psychology that I actually think is silly, not, that I think all like self it's not like I think self-help and pop psychology aren't useful to some people but it's like again if it's not proportional and you go and live in la-la land people are dead yeah (laughs) you know so anyway that's how I would set the table about her well and I think the interesting thing about people who are pursuing that particular sort of thing is that they actually aren't pursuing it in it for for a sense of self-improvement it's to it's kind of to 
it's because they need external validation. Like the funny thing is she says self actualization, mm-hmm. but really she needs someone else to tell her yeah. how to be okay with herself. Mm-hmm. Well, because she has no metric of what that would look like to herself. Yeah. She, she hasn't, I don't think she's self-aware. Like, I don't think she's, no. she's actually, and, and yet it is perfectly plausible to be, you know, it's, perfectly possible to be lacking in self-awareness and completely self-obsessed yeah and i think that's the interesting thing she she doesn't really care about ed what ed wants or no or or his, even really his happiness he mm. cares a lot about her happiness yeah she's nice and she's friendly but she she doesn't and she's pleasant and yeah she's pleasant but she doesn't um she doesn't see or she doesn't even think funnily enough she doesn't even think about rye <laughs> yeah like, i think she just assumes he's dead but she doesn't check yeah right yeah like how this is what i mean like she is so out to lunch that people die right like right. she think about this in a real life context she's driving on a road at night in winter she hits a person the person is in the windshield like the head through the windshield the head through the windshield right beside him doesn't go to the hospital no drives home assuming he's dead well, of and all then, of the things, and, she's not. She's not a doctor. And then <laughs> here's him wake up in the garage and her idea of covering up for this situation. say it's a deer. Well, not only just to say it's a deer, but then to say, oh, let's have sex now. Yeah. Like, I don't want to deal with his problem. <laughs> oh, yeah, so yeah. I'm going to distract you with something yeah, I know you want. Ed brings up the fact that they're not having as much sex as he maybe would like them to be having, <laughs> <Yes>. which is, <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a tried and true little trope for a... <laughs> for a show and yeah. so and then she's like kind of humming and hawing about that but once ed starts hearing the noises from the garage which if peggy's head was on right she would be saying oh there's probably a person in there that i hit because maybe he's dangerous right like she doesn't know but she's so kind of just she wants to not it's it's the element of she doesn't want to admit to the real life things going on because it's kind of like an impediment towards whatever it is she's trying to chase, mm-hmm. right? Like to have to put effort into the fact that she has mental or physical effort into the fact that she has hit a person with her car and he's in the garage right now. That would get in the way of whatever next thing to read about and think about in her magazines and to prepare for her seminar. Right. Right? Like that's just a, that's an obstacle she's not interested in being dealing with. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, I don't care about she, that. She that doesn't, doesn't want to solve her problems. She has no interest in solving her gr- yeah. actual real life problems. They're she's overwhelming. A, yeah. Right? They're 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 too much in a sense because they're not the kind of ethereal ones that are in her magazines. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but because of this, she puts Ed in so much danger by by, you know, uh, humorously enough saying oh let's have sex right now yeah well, right, I, well yeah. i'll give you what you want so you don't go search that <laughs> cr- crazy sound coming from the garage right, right. now <laughs> exactly yeah and so yeah i mean it's just hilarious she's such a great case study of the danger of discontent i guess okay? yeah well i think this whole show is a case study in the danger of discontent mm. to a degree yeah right? like because they are the the linchpin of the whole situation yes right? like it, yeah all of this would probably well some of it would have occurred because i think i was thinking about that uh yesterday too it's like well kansas city and the gerhards would have still been fighting this turf war sure but it's put on warp speed because of the lie that dot and hansy tell to 
the Gerhards yes. that the KC mob planned this hit on Rye. Right? And use the butcher. And use like the butcher. Yeah, yeah. Agent. It's just, yeah. it's good writing that Ed's profession, he happens to be a, a literal butcher yeah. in a butcher shop. <laughs> yeah. And so the Gerhards say, Casey hired the butcher, as his nickname suggests, to take out their son, Rye, which makes them want to go to war because that's what Dodd wanted anyway. Yeah. Because yeah. Dodd's got bloodlust in his veins. But all of that, so like all of the subsequent war deaths, maybe they would have happened eventually, but not that soon and not that concentrated and not that deadly. And because of all of that, that's kind of what made Hansi snap, which led to the death of the entire Gerhardt's anyway. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So like, again, that line, you got to come back to that line from Lou to Peggy. Like, people are dead, Peggy. Yeah. <laughs> and like a shit ton of people are dead because of your inability to face reality well i like how she's like well i don't it's not really my fault Mm -hmm. right that all of this has happened i never because my intention was never for any of this to happen well that's a great case study in not taking responsibility for things Mm -hmm. right and and not realizing that our actions have consequences Mm -hmm. and that we are responsible for at least some of if not all of those consequences right right which she doesn't want to do no she doesn't want to take responsibility her idea of self-actualization has really nothing, it seems, to do with taking responsibility, mm-hmm. which I think is actual, you know, self-awareness and mm-hmm. starting to... I think the first step to fixing whatever problem ails you is realizing that you have a problem <laughs> and the problem is you, Yeah, <laughs> right? Well, I, I'm just thinking, too, like, we have recently did Shutter Island. It feels like Peggy needed something like that to happen to her. Well, like yeah. she needed a massively intricate role play well, from somebody. You notice Hank does say to her, you're a little touched in the head. Yeah. Well, and that's why, like, she's a super interesting case because I feel like she straddles the line of fantasy and maybe just mentally unstable. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, it's, it's, she's, she's right in that blurred line between. But she's, she's functional. Delusion and actual mental instability. Yeah. And well, and even Dodd says, you got a problem, man. You got a crazy woman. Well, yeah, like, she's just, she just stab like they have, to, um, in when they had in the cabin, they have Dodd tied up and she just stabs him a couple times. Because he's not being polite. Yeah, because he's not being polite. <laughs> it's like, yeah, she is, she's kind of nuts. And I mean, we get that in a bit of a minor key when Hank is talking to, I guess it's both of them Hank's talking to when they suspect that it was Peggy's car that hit Dodd, or sorry, hit Rye, but they don't have any hard evidence they just like you know cops intuition and that kind of thing and so hank is like saying like look people could come after you we if you tell us the truth now we can go a long way to protecting you and it could it'll be a lot less worse than it could be depending on how you cooperate and all of this is just her like what that that scene is so good because you see the stark contrast between the grounded in the world danger of the world person of hank to the la la land fantasy dreamer untethered to reality of peggy and so like it's just good storytelling to have characters that opposite talking to each other and i mean ed is there so torn between the two you know because i think ed if he had his druthers is more like hank but he's just also not really sure of his relationship with his wife. And he's well, and that's that is all the weird thing too. about Ed, right? Is that he so longs for love. Yeah. And and he you can tell that he wants he, he's 
being so subservient to her because he wants validation from her. Mm-hmm. Like he he wants love back, and and he thinks that the way to get that is just to kind of like go along with whatever, right? And help her and solve her problems. It's really a a typical male issue, mm. right? Is this yeah. idea? It's that, not uncommon, right? Is that you they be, you become a slave to. And it doesn't make anybody happy in the relationship happy no. because why would like why would you want someone to love you? He, he's got all these kind of weird scenes where he's like putting up a little resistance to her cockamamie ideas, and then she's just like, "You don't believe in me, or what are you talking about?" And he's like, "Oh, okay, sorry." Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, like, like, he the thing is, he knows she, her ideas aren't good. No, but <laughs> but he's so needy. Like, yeah. there's a neediness to him, mm. and and I think it's kind of. I mean, there's something deeper here, too, about Ed, where just the way it was made in the show, he's a little bit overweight, yes. right? And even, even in, in, hands, in, he refers to him as the, the, the fat yeah, uh, yeah, redhead, yeah. right? So, like, in the superficial sense that most people are familiar with, she's better looking than he is, right? Yes. She's in better shape. So, in in the high school version of things, she would be generally considered out of his league. So, he's maybe working a little bit extra hard to not piss her off <laughs> yeah and he feels like you know he got so lucky probably mm-hmm. in this and and she does seem to love him so he's like i'm not gonna mess this up yeah and even though maybe she is a little bit crazy yeah like i, th- I feel like his whole value system is off because he doesn't seem to i mean at the very end he comes to his own self-actualization which is like i don't think mm-hmm. we're gonna make it yeah right which is interesting like that's the conclusion of of their relationship yeah. is him dying coming to the realization that they're just too different well and if you like just think of the um there's so many good scenes to see their disparity but the my favorite scene to see that's just the difference of psychology between peggy and ed is when they have dodd because the gerhards find out that ed is the butcher they go to his house somehow peggy gets the jump on dodd with his taser so they tase him tie him up throw him in the trunk of their car and they drive down to south dakota where Ed has a family cabin that they can kind of hide out in and try and figure out their next move, right? And this is when Peggy's at her happiest. Yeah. You're like in the car, she's like bouncing around. Hey, we're we're kind of we're doing it. We're really doing it. We're actualizing. We're we're kind of and like this has happened just after a whole gang of men came to their house to kill them. Yeah, yeah. And there's no fear. Yeah, and that many people have died and now they're in the crosshairs and ed knows all this and ed's like what are you talking about yeah <laughs> like, what, what do you mean like well she's like well you know now maybe maybe after this you know it's like we're on our way maybe we can go to california and we can yeah, find out like, right. something to do it's like and i think that was probably the scene where ed is really starting to like realize like oh my gosh I'm going to die if yeah. I stay with this woman. Yeah, yeah. And he does. Like, being with Peggy killed Ed. Yes, that's true. <laughs> Which is so sad. Ugh. Such a sad realization of the show. And yet, I almost see Ed as, like, a very minor Walter White version okay. of, a, of a character. Because well, that's good, because he, he was to, in Breaking Bad, yeah, he, the actor. <laughs> yeah, he seems to come into his own in a different sort of way. When he's given problems to solve. Oh, yeah. No, right? no. He's clearly we see competent. that he's incredibly competent in a way that I don't think the world itself has recognized mm-hmm. until he starts acting in, in a more, you know, a state of nature sense. Well, he's a salt of the earth type of fellow, right? Yeah. Like he's a, he's a not dumb blue collar person yes. is essentially what I would say. But he's, he's kind of like that blue collar type of person who is, 
he's soft-spoken, but he's also not articulate. So I think even though he's smart, he has a hard time addressing his ideas or, you, or yeah, stating you his ideas. Yeah, you see the intelligence with how he approaches situations, mm-hmm. right? Even with how he approaches the disposal of Ray's body. Yeah, but like, just be, but because Peggy is so much more verbally talented and articulate than he is, he often feels like at a loss, and like maybe he feels like he's the dumber one. Right. Of the two, because of how well spoken she is on the things that she cares about, which are things he doesn't understand at all. Right. So, like, part of me is like, how did these two even get together in the first place? <laughs> That's a good question. Where I they don't know. seem to have so little in common, <laughs> other than they're nice, right? They're both nice people. Just that scene of, again, Peggy is so untethered from reality that her happiest moment in the show is when they have a man tied up in the back of the car who was at their house to kill them. Yeah. But it's because she's not even thinking about any of that. Like, that doesn't even register to her. It's just, hey, we're on the move. We're, we're not stuck in our small little town in Minnesota. We're on the run. We're fugitives. We're Bonnie and Clyde now. Right. We're, like, we're actualizing ourselves, you know? It's like, yeah. oh, my gosh, Peggy. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> How? Like, <laughs> I don't even... I feel like I'm just going to go around and round and round the drain talking about Peggy. <laughs> like, yeah. But, it, but it's <laughs> like... Every scene, you just kind of, it's just such a well made show. Her character arc, the show around her is so well made, where you just like every little thing she says and does, you can just see a slightly smaller bit of tragedy going into the lives of other people now because of her decision making. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, and also, most ostensibly Ed, but also the Gerhards. Yeah. Right? Because the Gerhards now are going onto a turf war with a mob over something that they think happened that didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's interesting the the law of unintended consequences. Oh my right? gosh, yeah. Be, like and that really you don't know the impact of your own failings. The, the impact like it's that butterfly mm-hmm. effect, right? Yeah. That you don't know what the impact of your own failings are going to have. But Peggy's a great example of just the the rampant destruction that can occur from never taking responsibility for anything. Mm-hmm. Right? She yeah. doesn't she doesn't like holy shit, I hit someone I, I gotta call the police like yeah and that those are really difficult moments right yeah. when like it wasn't her fault yeah that this that she hit this person they were standing in the middle of the road but it's like because you're avoiding the immediate consequences of of, of an accident mm-hmm. you're actually your lack of taking responsibility spirals into hiding of the lie yeah. which you know and cover-ups and all this stuff well I guess also maybe it would have been her fault that she hit Rye because it looks like he was standing in the road for a few seconds. True. So she probably wasn't paying attention to the no, road. Maybe probably. she was listening to thinking, some, thinking about one of those own. tapes on the seminars or something. <laughs> I think she actually even maybe has a comment about that. Like to Ed at some point. It's like, well, I, was, I wasn't I was looking. Right. I'll be yeah. in trouble for that kind of thing. I can't remember exactly. But either way, yeah, you're right either way. Like it's just... Like really, that's the fundamental Dereliction of she, responsibility. Yeah, she doesn't want... She doesn't want anything bad in her life. She only wants good things. And she's not willing to suffer any consequences. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just through pure happenstance, all of the terrible things happen to everyone. I mean, obviously, she is going to go to jail at the end. But she doesn't die. No. <laughs> right? Like, basically, everyone else dies. She's the one that survives. <laughs> yeah. With, that, like, all of the people's lives that were put on a shit train because of her behavior and actions die, except her. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's, it's like, oh, God. And so it's like, I like that as a storytelling character. It's like the injustice of reality, too. Right? It's like, yeah. Not that I wanted Peggy to die, but it's like, just, there's something so 
like just f- so silly and crazy about the fact that she actually has the least consequences yeah. <laughs> for yeah. her life as anyone else does who's affected by it. And it's interesting with her character because you are kind of, I think it's like along the way, I still liked her. You know, like she has something about her pleasantness and her kindness that makes her not unlikable. Yeah, you don't sit there cringing and feeling like mm-hmm. she's just this terrible person, even though she seems maybe that she is a terrible yeah. person. But to me, um, the kind of final betrayal of her was when she was in a fantasy land while Ed was dying. Yeah, and but, and you see the look on his face like, oh no. Yeah. She wanted to she romanticize ma- everything that was every going on. Every single thing, yeah. Like, um, And I relate to that. I rom- romanticized quite a few things <laughs> in my teenage years. Right, right. But... There's that scene at the end where they're hiding in the meat locker in this grocery store, and they think Hansi is trying to kill them because he was trying to kill them. And so they, she starts seeing all this smoke come in and smoke them out, basically, right? And then if they open the door, though, the Hansi will be there to kill them. It turns out that actually that's all a figment of her imagination because she'd seen it in a Ronald Reagan movie yeah. <laughs> about the Nazis <laughs> playing, yeah. and escaping the Nazis. And so her final moment with her husband as he's dying slash dies is her imagining herself and him in a movie. Yeah. Right? And so... Because, again, reality... Mm-hmm. Even in that final moment, she can't. She can't be in the moment. Mm-hmm. She has to. She has to fictionalize or or ima- She has to live in an imaginary world because reality isn't enough for her. Yeah, and I guess that's the scene that makes me think maybe she's one step past that line into actual mental unhealth. Yes, right, because yes. she can't. She is not there for her husband as he's dying, and he's only dying because of her. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and so. It's just, it's kind of like, oh, and and then that scene at the end when where she's with Lou in the car and Lou is like, they're talking and she's saying, maybe, do you think they could maybe like transfer me to a penitentiary in California? <laughs> you know, yeah, it's like, you know... even then she's still just longing for something else. And it's that discontent with solving your problems now and going from there, like making yourself the beginning of the problem solving and and trying to self-improve through that. It's the difference between taking that stance and like thinking that it's actually out there somewhere that you can get to. And again, this isn't the main part of this, but my gripe with pop psychology is all of it that says that it is out there for you to go find, right? As opposed to the ones that say, no, start with yourself. Yeah, and I think it really goes down to the difference that we talked about in the Ayn Rand episode about process Mm -hmm. versus goal, right? If you are loving the process of even, let's say, Mm self-actualization, right? If, If what you enjoy is learning about yourself and how you work Mm -hmm. and what may, you know, what makes you feel contented and peaceful, then that's very different Mm -hmm. because that's a process. Yeah. And that's something you can do every day. And that's something you can find purpose in. Exactly. And whereas she's not actually looking forward to any kind of process. No. She wants a magic bullet. Yeah. She's living in this ennui, but it's so defining for her. Like, mm-hmm. that's how, who she is, is yeah. that emotion. Mm-hmm. And therefore, she's only looking to a goal. She's only dreaming of becoming something actualized, not being actualized, mm-hmm. which 
if she was actually looking for that, would take a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think the dead giveaway for anyone who isn't initiated in this kind of thinking would be when I can't remember, like there's a few times in the show where people ask her, well, what are you going to do when you're actualized? Right? <laughs> like, what are you going to do when you get there? And she kind of shrugs it off as a, as a stupid question. Like, what do you mean what I'm going to do? Like, I'll be actualized. Right. <laughs> right? It's I'll like, already like be there. The, the answer, there's no more questions post actualization. Right. Like it's kind of I mean, it's a similar sense to me of um, a lot of the non answers I would get as a kid about what to what we would do in heaven. Right. <laughs> right. right. It's like, when we're in heaven. Well, so are we going to play hockey? Are we going to play tennis? It's like, what are you talking about? You're in heaven. Yeah. It's like, like so that's it all the answers you need. Yeah. And it's perfect. Yeah. And she's kind of got that attitude about actualization. Like actualization is her standing in this example for heaven. It's like there's no kind of semantically coherent question you could even ask about being actualized, what to do after that. Right. Yeah. But yeah. time continues, as we've noticed. <laughs> <laughs> and things happen. Yeah. Regardless of whether you want them to or not. And that's the thing. She doesn't want things to happen. No. And so she she utilizes the human capacity for, you know, for distraction. Mm-hmm. And static thinking. Yeah. I would say, right? Like just the stasis of once you get to a certain goal, then you're just there forever. Yes. And it's all good. Like once you're at the peak, once you make it to the top of Everest, you're just at the top forever. Just, when everyone knows that you, if you're at the top of Everest... You need to go back down. Yeah, you're going to die. You could just stay there forever. <laughs> you do something You could else. stay there forever, but you wouldn't enjoy well, yes, it very much. Sure, fair enough. <laughs> I want to echo your sentiment on the process where I actually just recently reread, but I didn't remember it so well, so that's why I reread it, the famous American philosopher Richard Rorty's book, Contingency, Irony, and Solidarity. And it's really interesting. It's such a different way to think about ethical and self-creation problems. But his line at the end of the introduction, I'm going to paraphrase because I don't remember it verbatim, is the liberal ironist is someone who realizes that their utopias are an endless pursuit, not a goal to find, and that it's not about being actualized, but about actualizing. Ooh. <laughs> and, and that kind of process-oriented way is going to be much more satisfying. I mean, we talked a whole ton about Lou last time, so we don't need to dwell on it. But I think what is so great in the contrast between someone like Peggy and someone like Lou is that Lou feels the discontent of the modern sadness, but he doesn't look away from it and try to escape from it. He's he's trying to meet the world on its own terms to improve it, not asking the world to meet on his terms so that he can go find a like a mental escape. Mm-hmm. Right? And she is. And like that's such a great contrast in your like main characters i think it's just it's the the contrast between lou and peggy and hank and peggy i think is one of the just joys of fargo like just the the subtle joys you get from reflecting on yeah the difference of decision making that goes on with these main characters right and we really find ourselves i think feeling really sorry for both of them Mm -hmm. i mean i think the same can be said for ed if i really think about it I mean, he has a really practical sense of what he wants, but he doesn't have a practical sense of what he wants until maybe his death dying moment Mm -hmm. with. Was it when he's dying where he says, you're always trying to fix something, but maybe nothing's broken? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Like she's looking for problems in the future 
that can be solved by her own kind of paradigm. And and, and, like, is, and like you said, is discontent, mm-hmm. right? And that discontent is seeping into and destroying everything in her life. Yeah. And that's tragic enough. The tragedy in the story is that she drags Ed to his death. Yes. <laughs> and now it's not like, again, like you were saying, it's not like Ed had no of his own responsibility or his, like he obviously chose... Peggy can't force him to do anything. He he chooses to do all the things that he does. As an aside, did you that part on the phone where he's talking to Mike Milligan and Mike makes a joke and and uh, Ed doesn't get it? I was like, yes, oh, yes, I get it, Mike. Yeah, you're <laughs> like I've been there. I get I've it. Been there. I've I've lived this hell with you. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so I mean, obviously Ed himself isn't off the own responsibility hook of his, but he um. I guess that's his delusion a little bit is like that he just had to do everything for her that she asked because she, he does, you're right. He does struggle from the same kind of like deep into the fog of the future. Everything will be good between him and Peggy. Yeah. If he, he just does all these things for her. He, he's also like goal oriented mm-hmm. future. Like what does he want? Well, he really wants to own the butcher, butcher shop. She's like, I mean, uh, Noreen asked him, well, why do you want to own the butcher shop? We all still remember. Yeah. I think that's my favorite moment in the TV series, actually. Mm. Not with Ed, not yeah. overall, but right. with Ed, where he, she's like, but, but you're still going to die. Mm-hmm. You know, and he's like, well, I'm going to live a long life. My grandpa lived until he was like 96. And she's like, but then what happened to him? Like, and, <laughs> yeah, yeah, And he's yeah. like, oh, I'm not going to listen to your crazy talk. She's not talking crazy at all. Like, no. like she's asking a legitimate question. Why? Why mm-hmm. does this matter? And we get the answer from Lou where he's like, well, you know, it's our privilege. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, yeah, maybe we're pushing this boulder, boulder up the hill, but it's our privilege. Mm-hmm. Whereas... There is no answer for Ed. No. It's just that is the end in and of itself without a question of why that goal even exists. Mm -hmm. And so that's why he can't really mount any sort of coherent defense against the lunacy of Peggy. Yeah, because he doesn't have any sanity actually Mm -hmm. going on. Peggy is delusion and discontent active and... Ed is delusion and discontent passive. Yeah, but that that question, like I think, as a friend to your friends, mm. that's a really important question to ask. Yeah. Why? Yeah, yeah, because yeah. I'll take myself for example. When I was like fifteen, I re- I thought I was going to become prime minister, like, mm-hmm. and that was my goal. And you can probably remember me talking about that all the time yeah. back then. And I had a friend. I think I was about sixteen at the time. It was right during the invasion of Iraq, and we were talking. And I was like, "Oh man, I, I want to be prime minister." And he he just looked at me. He's like, "Why?" <laughs> Yeah. Like, what are you going to do? Like, what's, do you have a reason or is it just that that's something you want? That question has always kind of burrowed into my mind mm. and, and defined how I approach a lot of things in life now is like, why? Mm. You yeah. know, is there a reason? And if there isn't, well, then you should really ask yourself why you're doing that thing. Mm-hmm. Well, because if you don't have like what you might call a deep reason, it's probably something like a status reason. Yeah. Right. Or a title reason. It's all about a, identity. And or, or the labels, right? Because yeah. essentially, Peggy's big mistake is that to be actualized is just a label. Yeah. Right? Because there's no way she has of defining from the ground up what that would constitute. Right? It's just to be this word means that you are that thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so that's her, that's her desire. Like her prime ministerhood is actualization. Actualization, yeah. Right. 
Yeah. And again, I mean, it's and even at a social level, it's such a good commentary on the danger of buzzwords, you know, and the danger of just throwing around labels about something as if everyone already understands what it means, so you don't have to explain it. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. that's one of my I'd call it an intellectual pet peeve, but I think honestly the kind of danger of it is so high that it should be more than a pet peeve is like the words are used in discourse so like in the news or in a journal or in a book or in some sort of interview and they're kind of like abstract words so there's like enough room for interpretation of whatever you need it to mean or like you don't even have to have a conception of what it means you just use it right and then the assumption is everyone else just should know what that means without you having to dig deeper into it if asked yeah right yeah like that is so poison to a free mind and a free society because the whole point of dialectic is carving up the blind spots of our word usages even yeah (laughs) you know and so that's why like personally in in fargo it's humor in real life it's terrible policy not to mention bad thinking to not go deeper when peggy doesn't want to go deeper into well i'll be actualized what do you mean what I'm going to do after I'm actualized? I'll be actualized. Yeah. You know? So then, yeah. It's, so I like that, that you said it's static. She's, mm-hmm. she's static. Yeah. And so poor Peggy, ultimately. Yep. I mean, I guess maybe her defense mechanisms will be strong enough, kind of like uh, Andrew from Shutter Island, where she'll just be able to put all this out of her mind. <laughs> you know, as she's, she's been go, done good, pretty good well on that jail, so yeah. far, right? Yeah. So, um, the only other thing, and this isn't a, a major, well, I mean, it is a major thing, but it's not something we need to dwell on, but I think it's worth bringing up is that um, one of the the big signs that we get really early, I think it might even be the first episode, no, maybe the second episode. Anyway, the first episode where we really have dialogue in the house between Peggy and Ed, and Ed brings up, hey, we're not having much sex. This is like, I think as the audience, if we're a responsible audience, we realize that this is where their relationship is in trouble. Yes. <laughs> because if you have to be at the point with your partner talking about how much or, or how little sex you're having, it means that you haven't had... <laughs> that this is something that needs to be like addressed kind of every day. Right, right. right. yeah. And so like, I don't want to... I don't, I, I don't want to dwell on this in any sort of like lurid or pornographic sense but i i really believe when it comes to like the erotic coupling of people like this is such a crucial thing to like be involved in and talking about and thinking that should definitely be something that you're not avoiding yeah 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 exactly right and i mean it's not just sex i think it's just a clear example in the show and in life but i remember talking to a buddy once in uh korea about like well how do you know if you're the right person how do you know if it's like gonna work out and i was like dude if you're having those thoughts that's already a clue that it's not yeah yeah (laughs) because if you are um if you're actually like in a state of flow with a partner it's not that it doesn't take repair or maintenance maybe is a better word it obviously takes maintenance but that's like a daily job right? So a daily job is something like being able to talk about your feelings, emotional or sexual with your partner, uh, like on a daily basis. Yes. <laughs> and being able to like, uh, I think Jordan Peterson says, especially after you have kids, you need to have check-ins about your own friendship and romantic life with your partner like every other day. Yeah. Like every two days at the most is as long as you should go without talking about the kind of intimate things that you is special in that relationship and so 
that's just I know I I don't know like I guess I'm just kind of more attuned to that uh, maybe kind of funny because I'm single but <laughs> <laughs> like just yeah. oh yeah like what there's such a deep wisdom there I think because obviously sex is great but there's all of the secondary pleasures that come from it like wonderful daydreams about them or yeah. like the intimacy or the pillow talk or the kind of like special little jokes that come out of those kind of things that so it's not it's not just <laughs> well here's the lurid part it's not just the orgasms you're missing. It's no. all of the pleasure, the psychological, and even touch pleasure of being in a, with a person in that kind of vulnerable well, scenario. And I think that uh, we, when we, so we do not witness them have sex, but witness them like at the end of having sex and mm-hmm. kind of their ritual around that. It seems very short. Oh, and to well, the point, <laughs> it doesn't seem like it's good at all. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. She obviously is not enjoying it that much. It's just like something that she does. It's like a maintenance thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> it's and the thing she has to do to keep she, Ed working for her. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, and Ed seems completely oblivious to this fact, mm-hmm. right? Which I think, ugh, like, poor guy. But yeah. also, it's like, well, it's his half his fault, half not. I think it's he's not he's not being perceptive. No. Right? No. Like he, I, I feel like... But that's, again, because his worldview is so small. Yes. Yes. Agreed. But I think that bad sex is a, actually a symptom of, of other things. Mm. Right? Yeah. It could be that you're just bad at sex, and that's another problem. But I think, generally <laughs> speaking, I mean... Sex isn't something that you are you you know you start out good at, right? It's, no. Uh, with any partner, I think it's something you have to practice and learn the other person and like any I, like these these guys who think, oh, I'm good at sex with any woman and any. Although, woman. no, I won't tell that story. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> okay, but my my <laughs> my point is that sex is messy and complicated and yeah. and there's like all kinds of insecurities that people have around sure, it yeah, yeah, and yeah. all this stuff, but. Sex is not a thing in and of itself, divorced from a relationship mm. in, in a context like Peggy and Ed. Yeah. And so really the bad, the fact that they're not having sex should be a signal to Ed that, okay, I've obviously lost something the plot. with her. Yeah. yeah. Like I'm no longer keeping her interested. Why is that the case? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. So. <laughs> a lot of warnings in that couple, hey? From two single guys. <laughs> well, yeah, but, you know, we won't let that define us. We will, no. That's <laughs> you not will not define... <laughs> That's so, not our identity. Just from a storytelling perspective, though, like, I just, I loved their inclusion in the show. I mean, the show wouldn't have worked without them. No. Right? Agreed. Like, there's a... There's They're a kind few, of the anchor to... Yeah, there's a few characters that I like in, in Fargo that it's like, okay, well, if they weren't there, they would have figured something else out, but they couldn't have not had Peggy and Ed. No. Both for the plot and just the kind of like, the gut punch contrast between... Because like, I guess this would be like the last point I'd make on them. There's something obvious about the um, terribleness in the KC mob and the Gerhards, right? The violence is kind of speaks for itself in the kind of terror and why you don't want to be in that arena kind of thing, right? Like it's a little bit self-evident. But what I love about the storytelling with Peggy and Ed is that their kind of downsides are very intricate and psychological and mental and kind of like modern. It's like a modern insight to what's going wrong with them. 
right? Yeah. Whereas the what's going wrong with the Gerhards and the Casey Mob is a tale as old as time. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so, like, just the that kind of having that dichotomy of like you could go off the path here in the more conventional way, but here's another way you could be going off the path that maybe isn't as obvious and yet can be just as detrimental and tragic and tragic and just all of it, right? Yeah. So that's just the genius mm-hmm. of the show to give us yeah. these these various case studies we have like like you said the heroes quote unquote in uh betsy and lou like Mm -hmm. the people who be on the ark the best of humanity yes yes yeah and then we have the worst of humanity Mm -hmm. and again i guess i have to make another point about lou just another fact about him in the show that i love is that he's he's seeing all of these different sides of human weakness and frailty and stupidity and it's just like he's able to take it from every direction ultimately yeah, <laughs> like he he manages to keep pushing his boulder up the hill when he has to deal with the overt terribleness of the Gerhards and the covert terribleness of the Bloomquist. Yeah, you know? yeah, and he's dealing with, and then on top of that, the seeming careless universe that is killing his wife. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> so it's just more kudos to him. Okay, that's going to move us into talking about the Gerhards. The German descended family who lives in Fargo, who are the crime lords, organized crime of Fargo and trucking in the North Midwest, right? I thought maybe we could just like talk about. I made a couple points on like in the individuals themselves, and then we'll talk about like the family and the legacy at right. the end of talking about each. So, Rye, who starts this whole shit show off <laughs> with his stupid stupidness, uh, he's only in like the first episode. And like he, I think he's got a scene in the second episode, but it's like a flashback scene, right? So I'll bring up the alien craft here, but not to really bring Talk up what I think totally about the yeah. alien craft, because that's actually the very last point of the show I'd want to make. So, but what I enjoyed is because he just kind of he, for the what we see Rye do in this diner is unnecessarily and very just carelessly and heartlessly murder three people who like. This is such a true. They didn't need to be murdered. Yeah. Right. Nobody needed to be murdered, but it was his ego. But then he sees the alien craft, which makes him go out into the road, which makes him get hit by the car with Peggy. So I wrote, there's a little bit of cosmic karma going on here. It's true. But he's described as someone with wind and swagger by Ben. And so, like, this entire mess, the reason anybody's in this in the first place is because of his ego, right? Yeah. He can't handle being talked down to by that judge. He's only trying to, he's trying to, bribe or blackmail this judge into lessening a sentence for his buddy so they can do electric typewriters so all of this chaos starts from him wanting to make a bit more money because he's got small man syndrome in his family on electric typewriters and there's a judge who isn't going to just let him push him around so he just pulls out his gun and shoots her yeah like well, something that that's random such i mean this is where very the, fargo-esque well on the the beginning of the, the show this first episode with some of the violence that happens is just it's Tarantino-esque mm. brilliance in cinematography. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, even the look on the judge's face when she realizes that maybe she shouldn't have sprayed him, <laughs> like that, that she's underestimated his capacity for violence. Yeah. By, That's a good warning, hey? Yeah. Well, yes, exactly. It's She has, in her arrogance, like, I mean, she compares herself to God, right? She's like, you know, when, when the Satan came to God and he said, I'm going to be able to, you know, make, Job curse your name. Oh, I thought she was comparing herself to Job. No, no, because then she says, oh. if the devil couldn't convince Job, what makes you think you'll be able to convince me? Right. Yeah. Like, yeah, 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 maybe yeah. she's not comparing herself to God, but she's like, 
she's definitely well. She's well for sure. She's pointing out that he's a lot less than the devil. Yes, and maybe that's what triggers him. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Like she's very, you know. Well, what triggers him seems to be the you know being sprayed in the face Mm. or in the eyes with bug spray. Well, yeah, that's the physical trigger. But but I mean, like the the ego trigger is. Well, I love also where (laughs) she's like, "Let me guess, one of them's the hard way." Like she, like she's <laughs> yeah. so far ahead she of him mentally. His, his plan, and but I mean, so okay, so previously we're set up to Rye is the third oldest living Gerhardt's son. Uh, Dodd is the oldest living, then Bear, and then Rye. And there's a scene where Dodd is basically just browbeating Rye, like you're not the big man. You're not going to handle the big business. That's my job. You just go do whatever little things you need to do. So he's and like struggling. Basically you have to carry water and yeah. like everyone's got to prove themselves. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter who you are. And he's like, what's the point of having a, like be a name if like yeah. I'm just doing dirty work? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's, he's also discontented. Right. Yeah. And so this whole thing, I, I just think it's so, again, just the brilliance of the show, this whole tragedy is kickstarted by essentially ego and feeling like you're not being respected for one reason or another right as opposed to rye being able to like find meaning in the work that he might be given and can do and and learn right Mm -hmm. because like you're right he is behind the eight ball even intellectually with this judge he's able to be pinpricked and made fun of even more because he doesn't understand enough about how a judge is obviously going to know more about him and, and be yeah. able to predict his yeah. maneuvers, although obviously the one last thing she didn't predict. So I just think it's a good weigh in on this like idea of home oh, man, watch that ego. Yeah. Because <laughs> of the terrible places it can take you if you make rash decisions. With well, and it. especially if your ego is attached to some idea of grandeur. Mm. Right. That, yeah. Um, and, and there's a lot of um, myth weaving in the Gerhard family yeah right i mean honor like empire Mm, yeah there's the tale of the grandfather and and even dodd says what have we done in our lives that even compares to that Mm -hmm. right building something from nothing legacy all of these which they don't know for sure like maybe grandpa just killed the right people at the right time yeah they (laughs) they don't really know how he did it but they've built this mythos around not only their ancestors, but themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's actually caused them to be irrationally attached to that identity, to the, to the, to the point of insanity to yeah. a degree, right? It's like, mm-hmm. we would rather everyone in our family die. Eventually, that's what it comes to, right? We would rather everyone in our family die than give up on this notion of who we are. Mm-hmm. And that's a good segue. And then to Dodd, who is the kind of alpha of the Gerhardt family, but he's, I actually like, I don't like Dodd, but I think he's kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> like he's, he's certainly, he's, there's a, there's a weird humor. Like he's a terrible person. He's, he's a, so misogynistic and so violent. And so just kind of capriciously violent. And he, he like, he's kind of finally hates women. Yeah. And it's, yeah, I made that note. Like he's actually a real misogynist. Yeah. You want to see up. someone who, <laughs> You want to talk about toxic masculinity? There, that's right there. <laughs> here's right here's there. a perfect example. Yeah, yeah. Uh, here's here's maybe a limit case. Okay, so because like he yeah he's got even specific lines where he's like can't trust a woman. No, can't. or like women are the devil, right? Yeah. He like says that to, at one point when he's hanging Ed, uh, Ed, and yeah. he's and he's about, probably gonna about to kill 
Peggy uh, as Peggy, well. Peggy, he's like, you know. You see? She's even crawling up like a snake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. and then, I mean, part of the irony of him is that he has four daughters. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. he's, uh, well, I, he think, said, I think he's feeling cosmically cursed as well. Yes. Yes. <laughs> We see that scene with Dodd as a kid. Nine years old, he kills one of his dad's rivals. He's the secret weapon that is able to be snuck into a meeting because no yeah. one thinks a nine-year-old is going to kill anyone. No. And he's the one that sticks a knife in the head of the rival, right? And so you're like, obviously, this is someone who's grown up with trauma for sure, but like just a particular view of the world, right? Yeah, yeah. Which puts him on that path. And... It see and it's his okay, and this is why what's that like a like a fool to his folly, like, like a, a moth, uh, like a dog returns to it vomits. So yeah, a moth to, to the flame. Yeah, fool to his folly, Dodd to violence. Yeah, like Dodd, Dodd finds the meaning of his life in the fact that he can fight, and that it's honorable to fight. Like Dodd, like the whole Gerhardt family is an honor culture bound family, right? Like they're of that era yeah. of that feel, and no one is more like that than Dodd, right? Dodd is the the pinnacle of that perspective and so he lies to his mom about rise death right like he, he i mean now i'll talk about it in a second in one sense he does it to make his mom feel better because the fact actually rye only died because of a random happenstance yeah. there was no deep meaning to it and that's that was intolerable for her which is interesting too right but he's also lying about it because he wants to fight the KC mob. Yes. <laughs> right? The yeah. whole, the couple episodes before that, kind of everyone in the family was talking about, well, maybe we should listen to the KC's proposal, right? Like maybe yeah. we should make a counteroffer because war is hell. But Dodd wants the war. Um, it reminds me actually, have you have you seen 1917 yet? Not yet. Okay. No. Well, this isn't really a spoiler, but there's a line in the movie where the main guy is running around and he's got a letter from the general that says, stop your attack because there's way more Germans here than we originally thought, and it's actually a trap. So right. like, that's the plot of him trying to deliver this letter. And halfway through the movie, he's met up with this other German or British uh, regiment, and the, the leader of the regiment, who's played by Mark Strong, which is fun about 1917, there's all these famous people just kind of littered throughout... Um, when he tells him of his mission and he's going to, I think it's like Colonel McKenzie, he's going to go show this letter to. And this guy stops him and says, make sure there are witnesses when you read the letter. And the oh. guy's like, well, what do you mean? It's like, some men want the fight. <laughs> right. Right? Some men have the bloodlust. They want the fight, even if it's not in their best interest. Yeah. And that's... The glory, yeah, right? That, okay, well, there's a good element of toxic masculinity. The yeah. ones who want to fight, even if it's not even close to the best idea of something to do, right? So they'll, like, tip the scales in their favor for the fight. And that's Dodd. So when Dodd lies to his mom and, and kind of slyly gets Hansi to back up his lie that the butcher, Ed, isn't just some random poor guy whose wife hit a guy, hit Rye, no. but is, like, in the employ of the Kansas City mom. Now his mom... Has a sleeper a, agent. Yeah, right? has an extra reason to want to fight, you know? And so I thought, now there is, de- uh, there's another, like this whole family is a warning, <laughs> right? Yeah. But like, there's a perfect example of the real danger of, I, I guess part of it is male or masculinity, but part of it is just like the desire for blood more than anything. Vengeance. Right? Yeah. Like he would rather be dead than have to sell any of, their yeah and, and or their uh you know empire 
to the KC mob and he'd rather his whole family. But the, see, this thing is with these men or these people, it's never just them. No. It's always going to be everyone around them, right? So, and they're okay with that because yeah. that's just how they Because live. it's for glory, yes. right? Or honor or something. And so, I don't know. You have any other thoughts on Dodd? I find it interesting how if we look at how he treats subordinates mm. and how negatively that impacts him in the end, right? It's like, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like it's very different than how Mike treats his subordinates, mm-hmm. which is with a great deal of respect and like he, and humor and humor. Like, yeah. but he never, he never really disses them. He doesn't treat them. Yeah, like true. Less Good than point. Him. And that helps them stick up for him when he needs them later. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, like, I mean, those guys could have made the choices like, oh, the Undertaker's on, or he, that guy, yeah. the, one of the Kitchen Brothers could have been like, well, the Undertaker's on their way. I'm just going to, you know, I'll yeah. sit back and That's let who, this happen. Yeah. Although the Undertaker had bodyguards as well, so maybe yes. he would have been killed too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, But yeah, that's a good contrast. Whereas Dodd treats Hansi like a second-class citizen, and yet considers him his most loyal. Like he he mm-hmm. he treats him like he owns him, mm-hmm. like he's a slave, and like as if Hansi has no agency of his own. And the only thing that that Hansi will ever do is what Dog says come back to, to bite him in the ass. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> There's that scene where Bear is going and talking to Hansi and actually giving him kind of a a, a human touch of appreciation. Mm, yeah. For, you know, all that he's done to serve the family. Yeah. And Dodd's response is... Quit talking to quit my talking Indian. Quit talking to my <laughs> Indian, right? Like, yeah. like, that he belongs to me. And you're not... Like, and it's... He does ask Hansi or Hansi at one point, are you with me? Mm-hmm. But he doesn't treat him like you would want to treat someone... To, there's no maintenance of that relationship. Yeah, and it's it's... Well, it's a purely employment-based relationship and there's just no inspiration right because when shit starts getting real if your subordinate's attachment to you is purely in the titles of their title and yours yeah they're gone yeah <laughs> they yeah. are when fucking they, when gone they have a chance when, survi- when it's and that's best case yours. scenario more likely is they're stabbing you in the back yeah <laughs> right yeah. like to be left alone by them would be the best case scenario <laughs> however as opposed to like maybe the comparison you're making with mike and the kitchen brothers is mike treats them respectfully with dignity doesn't ask things of them that he isn't willing to in whatever way it is engage in himself if it's something that he legitimately needs of them he asks them but not like doesn't beg just says i need you to do this but again like all the in-between not work moments he's in relationship with them right so then it's not just the title that will make so then if shit gets real with mike the kitchen brothers there for him yeah right yeah it seems so obvious to some probably like you and me but, right but but, but it's dodd not. dodd went, oh it's okay this is you know whatever we've given spoiler disclaimers long before yes. in this. when hansi kills dodd i mean he's dead but nobody in the world is more surprised than dodd yeah that hansi did that yeah just like and yet like of course well, and this, the audience were like, "Of course, this yeah. is going to happen to you." This is a kind of an expectation thing when when you just assume that others are going to provide you with some service. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a friend who, um, during this time of the pandemic, has moved into his work, which happens to be a very a fancy like upper upper class. He moved into his work, like facility that he oh, works for. like out of his house into his work. Yeah, so that he could continue working. Oh, okay. um, it's it's like a 
it's an estate, right? <laughs> Some people take their work home. Yeah. <laughs> Your friend takes his, his, he goes his to home work. work. Yeah. <laughs> so um, one of the things is they have a butler that serves food every day, right? And, mm. and he was telling me how it, your mindset begins to change. Right. And then he said, the other day I sat at the table for 20 minutes waiting for my dessert to arrive. Just <laughs> 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 expecting it, right? Sure, yeah. And the reason I, I bring that up is because when you project expectation on others, so even, let's say, going back to sex mm-hmm. in a relationship, right. if you're just like, that's what's owed, right? Mm-hmm. Because you have some Game kind over, of, dude. Yeah, you have some <laughs> kind of conception of yourself. Yeah. Uh, in this case, Dawes has a... He just feels like he is great. I mean, mm-hmm. he feels like he's the firstborn. Not isn't even actually the firstborn, but is the firstborn now. Yeah. Therefore, it's his empire. Exactly. He feels like... He's in charge, so Dodge should just do whatever he says. Yeah. And take whatever abuse he gets. A Hansi. Hansi, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Dodds is like, well, I'm older than Bear, so like I can't have you Bear, you can't treat me that way in front of the men, so you're just gonna have to take, take a whipping. Take a whipping, right? Yeah. Like Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So and we all see what happens to Dodd. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so then that's good, because then now we're at Bear, the middle son, and he was at, I mean, he's the least interesting, I think, of the Gerhards that are on screen a fair amount, but there's a couple parts that I thought was interesting. He's got a line, there's not enough of us left to start telling the truth. I was like, here's a good example of sunk cost fallacy. Yeah. <laughs> like, we're too true. deep in this. If we cut our losses now, we look bad. And actually, I mean, this is a hugely different, but in scale, but same in principle situation is, um, I've been uh, re-watching the documentary on the Vietnam War, the, the Ken, uh, Ken Burns, Lynn Novick film. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's not just from this film, but it's like, you know, the post was kind of about this and just how much the American brass knew that it was a more or less unwinnable war and how early they knew that and yet didn't end the war because of how it would have made the United States look yeah. internationally. And just how many thousands and thousands of people died after that realization was made because of to save face basically yeah. like here's a here's the a tragedies w- <laughs> of that and i mean that's what happens to the gerhards yeah right here's a weird little factoid more people have now died of covid in the united states than died in the world or in the vietnam war oh really yeah how many is that uh, over 50,000 now have died in okay. from COVID, yeah. Sure. Yeah, it's interesting how our intuitions are just pulled so different. I know. Like, we like, see... No, I'm not tempted to say COVID's worse than the Vietnam War. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But it's, it's because we place so much more emphasis on human choice and the outcomes of that versus kind of like the vicissitudes of existence. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, I, and it's not crazy. No, that is not crazy. No, we so, should, I think that is how we have to navigate the maybe world. Maybe that's a good example of the primacy of psychology and intuition over statistics. Yeah, right. Like statistics are good if properly methodologically categorized. Yeah, but we, we well, we need some kind of framework to fit them into. Yeah, but a fault like a faulty statistical comparison can make people think or or put people off course, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can't really think of the kind of person who would say, oh, more people have died from COVID than Vietnam. We should go back into Vietnam then. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Right? But yeah, point taken. That's interesting. So Bear is the character that kills Simone, yeah. Dodd's daughter. And he's, he says to her as he's going to kill her, it doesn't matter what you mean, it's what you do. It's like, hmm, this is the tragedy of the moral dichotomist or the moral black and white person or the moral who, person who can only think in that term, right? 
now obviously Simone herself, <laughs> who I would say a chatterbox is a sign of a guilty conscience, mm, <laughs> right? Like she, I like that. she can't, she doesn't stop. She doesn't shut up that whole drive with bear because she knows she's in trouble because she's basically betrayed them to yeah. Mike. Yeah. So she's no angel in her own right for sure. But I use principled and scarecrows here. The principled take that bear has to adopt mentally to deal with the situation is to kill his niece. Yeah. It's like, it's, that's all it is. It's what you do. It's like, man, no wonder your family's going to get wiped out. <laughs> you're just, I know. To, you're not, you like, forget about the ethics of it. That's not a dynamic enough mentality to deal with the complexity of the world. Well, it's funny because she actually says at one point, this family deserves the ground. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. But I mean, of course, when her mortality is on the line, she kind of changes her tune a little right. bit. As, right. any, yeah. as any as sane person would. will, yeah. right? But do you know what I mean? Like, he's. Dodd too, but Bear Bear is a little bit more obvious of a case. Like they're just not smart enough. They they don't have a flexibility of mind capable of adapting in the way that, like for example, the KC mob is adapting to the world. No, yeah, right. They're they're stuck in. Well, it's funny because it's almost an American gods esque war. Yeah, right? yeah, between, yeah, yeah. That's a good between the old callback. gods and the new gods, but between KC and and the Gerhards. So Floyd, the mom, Jean Smart, is so broken up about Rive's death. So she actually flips and talks to the cops, which is the womanly thing that Dodd would have hated. Yeah. <laughs> right? And yet she is ready for war when it's in vengeance of her son. So even she has a limit, you know? I don't know. I actually, I mean, I think Floyd is the most impressive of the Gerhards. But she's certainly but the even most she, tactical, yes, and thoughtful, yeah, uh, and and understanding of their situation. <laughs> yeah, she seems the most like, like in touch with reality. Bear, just going back to Bear for a second, he yeah. like the the way that they portray him is so amazing. Like where he's constantly <laughs> yeah. eating like chicken yeah. legs, yeah. and he's just eating out of the fridge. He's just like this big mountain lumberjack man, <laughs> yeah, like huge beard who who doesn't seem to have any like they try they almost make him unintelligent, but he doesn't. But you find out he's not actually unintelligent. Yeah, he's at just all. this kind of like smart. He just doesn't care lumber. about himself. He yeah. just he he leaves the outward trappings of self. He doesn't care about at all. Mm. Well, and I mean, the so the the actor who plays Bear is also in the first two, and I think the fourth Insidious films, and he he and Lee Winnell, the other the guy who wrote Insidious, they're the comic relief. Of those oh. movies. <laughs> so it's very so different. So it's so different. It's such a funny... It's good acting that yeah. he can have that kind of contrast. But yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I guess realistically, even though she's tactical and intelligent, Floyd, she's just kind of keeping them together. Right? Well, she's the, she is the mother. And like, yeah. it's maternal. Everything for her. Like, even her love for Dodds. There's that... It is that rather touching scene. Yeah. Uh, where they're in the back of the car and Dodds like puts his head on her shoulder like... And she keeps pushing him away yeah. and then embraces yeah. him. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. She even loves her deeply misogynistic son that who hates d- her in some sense. <laughs> well, it's that wonderful line where, like, uh, you know, a face only a mother could love, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. Uh, yeah. A soul only a mother could love. <laughs> well, and it's the mother in her that wants the fight then. Yeah. You know? And then, I guess, flips. Yes. Or... So anyway, like the whole family, the Gerhardt family, they're left in a situation where they're either losing their legacy and having their enterprise being bought or they're going to be killed because like against Kansas City, it's the old world versus the new world. And for KC, it's not about honor. It's not about dominance. It's not about 
pride. It's not about legacy. It's just about markets, yeah, <laughs> which is intolerable for the Gerhards. And what is interesting here is about how, like we've talked about before, even worse than being defeated is being ignored, right? Even worse than being destroyed is being thought to be irrelevant, Right. <laughs> right. And right. that's what the Gerhards, that's the maw the Gerhards are looking into in this show is that actually it's not even that we want to beat you. It's just that you're not even worth our time. Right. And like you are worth our time in the sense that if you fight, we will kill you, but we don't want to. Yeah. We just want to buy you out. Yeah. We, <laughs> right? we just want to pay. It's just, it's just, your, your heart and soul and legacy and because they're German, your Geist. We don't give a fuck about that. Yeah, yeah. We just the the numbers on our sheets say that we'll line do better. up better if we do this. <laughs> so I don't know. Like, what do you think about that tension between legacy, irrelevance, markets, like the kind of standoffishness of markets versus legacy? I guess I don't know. It's like a weird topic that I haven't even really yeah. thought a lot about. But I think the the tension it's a big theme of the show with this family between the modern world and a more ancient world. Mm. I mean, I think I've mentioned this every podcast for the last little while, but I'm really listening to, loving the Dan Carlin series Ah, on uh, the death throes of the Republic. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I'm loving about it is hearing about the lives of these people who do these arguably impressive things Mm -hmm. uh, on a materialistic way, and then their legacies wiped out by the, the people that come after them over and over again. Yeah. And that mindset is very driven by honor, glory, accomplishment, fame, power, prestige. These these things that mean a lo- meant a lot more at one point. Mm-hmm. Uh, like there's a great insight that Dan Carlin has where he says, people didn't get rich in Rome to be rich. They got rich so they could command armies. They commanded armies so they could gain honor. Yeah. Because honor was really the currency mm-hmm. of value. The power of your name. Yeah. And we see this with Mike because we kind of talked about this a little bit with Mike. Mike lives in that world too. Mm-hmm. Or like, he, he, he kind of wants, wants to, yeah. He wants to win. He wants glory. He wants... Like, to outsmart the, them. The cultural significance of, of great deeds mm-hmm. matter to him, yeah. right? Uh, he loves the quotes of, you know, men that are perceived as great. And then we have the faceless and soulless corporation mm. whose sole reason for existence, even according to like the like the legal definition, is to mm-hmm. return profits for shareholders. Mm-hmm. And it takes the humanity right out of it, just flushes it all away. Mm-hmm. And says we're all just pluses and minuses now. Yeah, you know, you you can get control of a territory by saving a million a year in a mailroom. Yeah, right. Yeah, why why does this bug us? Like, well, I, and I mean, it, yeah, why does it bug us? Even in the sense that because really, if you analyze it, it's just one shared fiction beating a different shared fiction. Yeah, <laughs> right. Like yeah. the idea of honor only exists in the people who think about honor. Yes. But the idea of the corporation only exists in the people who think about the corporation, right? So it's like, 
even though if you're at a board meeting, all the corporate board members would speak as if there is a corporation, it only exists because they speak as if there's a corporation, yeah, right? It's a completely with, a construct. <laughs> with, but the same is with like honor or pride. I or know. Glory. So it's why do we like the idea, or maybe we don't like the idea. Well, why does the idea of honor have more of a romantic appeal? Well, because it's more primary to our sense of the world Pro- and it's probably evolved. Right. Like there's elements of it that are evolved in the sense that even in the modern day, like even today, we have people that the idea of celebrity. Yes. Like the the root word of that would just be like the state of being known. Right. Yeah, and and right. how do you get known? Because you do something that other people like or admire. And or so name, many people are right? like trying to get as many followers as they can and like become known. Yeah. And, right? it's, and the thing is, it's not like the Roman people or like not. I mean, I'm sure there were some, but a lot of the people in Rome who got acclaim did something to earn it in one way or another that was appreciated by the people there. Right, right. right. Um, Now, obviously, it could have been a lot more like violent than we would want now. But when I look at someone like uh, Robin Williams, here's someone who deserved his fame because of the amount of effort and work he put into making people's lives better in his humor and his Mm -hmm. entertainment of us, right? So I think the seed of that is still in our culture. It's still culturally relevant. I wouldn't call it honor exactly, but it's like a claim or admiration for people doing something amazing. But where it gets pathological, like any of these things can, is when you want that status again, or like the, t- the title of it matters more. So you'll notice throughout the show, it seems like the Gerhards are motivated to fight so that they can keep their name, not so that they can add to it. Right? right, not to like continually be doing something like I mean, like of course, oh, oh, you're really proud of the fact that you're organized criminals who run drugs. <laughs> like, okay, right. fair enough, but like you built it, but it's like it's still just about keeping that right. And so, like, I think that's why people I consider true artists are the ones who are always looking to like keep continually grow. Like, they don't want to rest on their laurels. They want to continue. They want to deepen their thing and so i think an idea like legacy only works again like at the end okay once you're old and maybe on your deathbed thinking about a legacy is good right but not while you're young no like you need to be involved in your endeavors so that you can actually do them well yeah and not get stagnant now that's the one side the the market-based side i think how did this shared fiction grow I mean, I don't know. This is it's it's because it's more recent. I think there'd be a lot more sociological reasons for the faceless corporation and its fiction as being real, <laughs> in a sense that it is and isn't at the same time. I mean, honestly, I think wealth is attractive. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> like wealth is attractive, and, and the faceless corporation us. has figured out how to make wealth, yes. or at least make the people who work for it be wealthy. Yeah. Yeah. Or not even the people who work for it necessarily, but at least the people who own it. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? And so, I mean, I'm a capitalist at heart in the term of value creation, but obviously the the, the oldest and most true danger of capitalism is greed. Yes. (laughs) And what that can do both to the soul of the people who are around them and then also to the planet of things that can be done. And so... Yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I'm probably not qualified enough to know exactly, like, the sociological reasons of why the corporation rose as it did, other than people got richer, and that is fun. Like, it's more fun to own shit than to not and be able to shit. buy own yeah. shit. Yeah. So, and then that's what corporations allowed people to do more. I think 
that you kind of get a very I mean, because at the end, every Gerhard is dead except Charlie. Yeah. He's still in jail. And there's something fitting about that because Charlie is actually the only one who, even though he wants to go kill Ed, he can't in the end. So Charlie is actually really the only kind of good Gerhard. Yeah. <laughs> right. And funnily enough, Bear promised his mother that he would become the only good Gerhard because yeah, he wouldn't yeah, be yeah. involved in the family business. And it and it kind of panned out that yeah. way, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think the Gerhards are just a, a, a perennial story of empires fall. But they fall, especially if you're just trying to keep them as opposed to grow them. Yeah. Because you lose your vitality. Yeah, right? you stagnate. The, the Ger- Gerhards are just chasing the ball. Yeah. <laughs> like the whole show, they're chasing the ball. They have no real, like, there's, yeah, there's no, they're just trying to, like you said, preserve what they have, hold on to what they have. They're, mm-hmm. They have no expansion plans. Yeah. The only Gerhardt who ever gets the drop on anybody, and the KC is uh, our friend Hansi. Yes. <laughs> it's yes. not a Gerhardt. No. But is uh, the An last character Gerhardt. to talk about. So, holy shit. I am blown away by this guy. What a character in, I guess you wouldn't call it cinema because it's a TV show, but what, what a character in TV. Yeah. Hey? The gravitas that this, that so this like guy has. Pure competence. Pure competence. Like, talks even less than Lou. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so, like, the first kind of insight we get into Hansi is him in a kind of, like, boarding school, it looks like, at about age 9 or 10, with all these other Native Americans. And there's a guy doing a, a rabbit trick, or a pull-a-rabbit-out-of-the-hat trick, a magician there. And so we see Hansi holding a rabbit, and then after we see Hansi holding a dead rabbit <laughs> walking home. Yeah. And so we're like... The setup is, oh, okay, does he have a fond remembrance? No, he's cold. Yeah. There's something cold in Hansi's heart. Yes. Right? And that's great foreshadowing. And like we talked about last time, he's also a Vietnam vet. Yeah. I think it's at the bar. I can't remember where. I think he says it's at the bar with all the racists before he Yeah, he's like, how, about a, how about a veteran with a purple heart and yeah. a medal of honor or whatever? Yeah, but he... Well, what about this line where he says because he's talking about being back in the United States after Vietnam, it's the quiet I can't get used to. Do you remember when he says that line? He says that to the guy in the uh, mechanic shop. Ah, okay. Right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that that's such a great insight into like, obviously he's struggling too, right? He's struggling with the PTSD that he went through in Vietnam, but he has no kind of relationships with anyone to talk about it to Mm -hmm. you know which is so sad and so tragic and so hansi is the gerhardt's they call him their indian he's native american and he kind of is their actual secret weapon like he's he's really the only capable person well like when they say go they're like go find out how ray died or what what where ray is go find him right and he and he like meticulously tracks essentially mm-hmm. in in that first nation you know skill set there's a little bit of a cliche there sure yeah right is that but he he just looks and he can just uh, again the incredible capacity of the directors of this show mm-hmm. to show you images that will immediately spark what you know he's thinking by looking at these images, yeah, like where yeah, he yeah, finds right. the broken piece of glass mm-hmm. from the tail light. Yeah, right. Or so good. Or when he finds the blood, you know, and he and he's just yeah. and he's like, who did this belong to? And he's just he is kind of like the the harmony mm. to Lou, 
Right. Right? Like, he's the other note. Like, if, mm. if there's a good note and a bad note. Interesting, yeah. Like, a, in, a, in a song, like, he's the yin to the yang. Right? <laughs> yeah. Like, because he's equally good at yeah. figuring these things out. Maybe even better. And yet, not able to... Not able to have any peace. He has no peace. Well, yeah. And he's the one who snaps. Yeah. Like, Lou doesn't snap and go homicidal. <laughs> no. Hansi does. Now, it's interesting because he actually... Oh, I mean... <laughs> not gonna say there's a good excuse to go homicidal but like he does it to people who are overtly racist to him yeah right i mean obviously not the cops that he kills but the people in the bar like what makes him snap it's so it's so cool he's in sioux falls and he's going into this bar and on it it says here were hung 22 indians on this day in 1876 or something like that and it's like portrayed as something they're super proud of yeah right yeah and so when he goes in like he so he kills the racists and i just i feel like all of that was just because he just had enough he had enough of being treated like a second-class citizen by the country he lived in by the family he worked for and then when he's a customer yeah in a bar i guess i guess really it's just it's like a vibrant warning on how you treat different kinds of peoples in your society yeah right yeah again it's not an excuse but like when you think about some like maybe something like school shooters like a lot of them were bullied right like it's like a lot of people who kind of lose it and go on these homicidal sprees are addressing what is probably a legitimate grievance in one form or another hmm. not all of them and 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 obviously the payback is way disproportional but like you know how much how much in his life has hansi dealt with this kind of latent or overt racism yeah like he even got it from his employer i don't know like how long could you take it yeah i think we we have to be careful in saying that you know that it's not not i mean it's like one of those things of saying it's a reason not a excuse, excuse. yeah yeah right exactly and i think what these pe- characters always represent is a flagging to us of saying this is what happens when you let these things eat you mm-hmm. and push it too far yeah so for us you know this is what treating people poorly could result in Mm -hmm. if if we yeah it's like a lesson for the majority and then for people who are being treated that way Mm -hmm. it's also a lesson in the sense that his final verdict on life is that it's just kill or be killed and we don't know what he does to those kids in the on the ball Mm -hmm. diamond but he's like it looks like he's about to kill them all well yeah or at least the bullies yeah right uh yeah and i mean that's interesting that he actually is one of the characters who escapes and gets off kind of scot-free like he gets a passport and that kind of thing yeah you know just talking about that makes me realize like probably the people hansi the person hansi needed to talk to was lou right (laughs) right like you know those those little conversations that lou and hank have about their war experiences just hansi has no one to talk to about that right no no one respects him as a person no because of that he doesn't have anyone in his life that he can share those things with that he needs to talk about obviously Mm -hmm. in the way that he's phrasing things right he needs to talk about his experience in vietnam and and in the show the best person to have done that with would have been lou yeah because lou would have been understanding and relational about it you know yeah yeah that's so interesting how it's again lou would have been the hero there 
or at least like the kind of person to help out. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, for sure, I don't want to, I'm certainly not giving any excuses for anyone who uses violence to solve their grievances, but it is a good lesson to the majority of like, okay, well, these are actually things we are in control of, right? Even stuff like, and, and it's and it's empowering in this sense, like even stuff like if you just, if you imagine being in that bar and be like, hey, you guys are fucking racist. Shut up. Yeah. Yeah, sure, you're putting yourself in some danger or like maybe they'll fight you, but like, you know, <laughs> it was way worse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like these those poor troopers. But I mean, like the kind of senseless violence of it is very Fargo-esque. Yes. Right? All of the kind of, all the collateral damage violence and sadness of that is just the way Fargo goes. Yeah. Like, that's how it's written. Yeah. Ever since the first film. So it's it's in keeping with the spirit of the feel of the, of the show and the movie. But the other thing I wanted to like just notice about Hanzi, and this isn't really about him, but it's like I use this kind of heuristic at work where I say, okay, well, what game am I in? Right? What game am I playing with the kids? If everything's going well, I can be, I'm in the program running game. Right. <laughs> if this kid mm-hmm. is having a temper tantrum, I'm in the behavior modification slash calm and regulating this person game. And the programming game is having to be put to the side. Right. Right. <laughs> if you don't do that, then you run the risk of feeling anxious and disappointed that you're not doing your original goal. Right. And so it's just a good way of like the shifting in the of game. Compart- yeah. yeah car- compartmentalizing what I'm doing so I don't feel bad or anxious and so hansi shifts the game for himself when he kills dodd right right he's in a different game now because his whole game previous to this was working for the gerhards to find the butcher and rye and now they found he's found them and one it's so interesting once he's found dodd and the butcher he chooses the butcher yeah and he chooses peggy and ed's lives over dodd's yeah because they haven't done anything to him and it's just interesting how, like, that's, like, the Rubicon moment. I mean, the Rubicon moment was killing the troopers. Yeah. But as far as his relationship, because everyone else in the Gerhardt family doesn't know that Hansi has killed Dodd. No. So that's why it's so cool when he he decides to make it worse for everybody, hey? Yeah. By lying to them. And then he kills Floyd to complete the revenge. Yeah, I don't know. Like, maybe that's just exposition of the show. But, like... Is that just a continuation of what happened to him in the bar or like the finishing of that job because it was the Gerhards who've been doing this to him? I think that that's a big part of it. And I also think he really does get into the mindset of there's nothing but kill or be killed. Mm. And I'm just gonna, I want to be free. And the only way I'm really going to be free is if these people are dead. Right. Yes. Yeah, that's true. And I guess from the Gerhards point of view, it's a, it's an incredibly like uh, I think you've used this phrase before, like be careful who you step on going up because you don't yeah. know who's going to step <laughs> up who, well, when you go you down. Know, you'll meet them on the way back <laughs> yeah, down. Yeah, you meet them yeah. on the way back down. Like um, the Gerhards just seem to be stepping all over Hansi in that sense, right? And so he got the last laugh on them. Yeah. And again, it's it's there's I can't quite articulate, but there's another deeper lesson here too. It's like it's the idea of like oh, if you got to break a few eggs to make an omelet. People aren't eggs. And the collateral damage of the people's psyches and feelings and thoughts of who might be in your crew as you're trying to make your omelet, yeah. your legacy and your pride and your honor, like... If you're not even... If you don't have priorities of the people around you, it's going to get you at some point. Yeah. Right? It's just like, it's the... It, well, this is what... Like, 
I think karma is a real thing, but I don't think it's a real thing metaphysically. I think it's a real thing psychologically. Yeah. Like people remember their yeah. grievances. Yes, and, they do. And they will put, there'll be micro decisions along the way to kind of balance out people's relationships with each other whenever they can. Right. Yeah. And then yeah. when that happens most starkly, we call that karma. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I just, I feel like Hanzi is, he just needed a friend. Yeah, he doesn't have any. No. And I mean, even we're, we're led to believe that Otto, the patriarch, the Gerhards, who gets a stroke right away early in the show, he only just took him because he felt bad for him and wanted like him to work for them. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's were, like, And never treated him as uh, like he was always second class too. Yeah. So there's, there's some tragedy there. Yeah. I guess the, the interesting thing is uh, he kind of represents what could happen to a person who becomes like a master of their craft, mm. but has no underlying ethical framework, ethical. Like, yeah, <laughs> the, he is the most dangerous form of, of person. Sure. Yes. Uh, because he's incredibly competent. He's talented. He's talented. And he is uh, emotionless mm-hmm. about the carrying out of his of what he's doing mm-hmm. right he's just he's ruthlessly focused on an object and he's unpredictable yeah because he betrayed the his employers exactly so, so it's like you don't know who he's gonna go for they're the ones that you always have to watch out for is the really really competent ones who you have to be you have to keep those people happy <laughs> yeah and who doesn't really seem to have a direction no right which is i mean i'm reminded of the great line in Big Lebowski. So this is probably inspired uh, Coen Brothers is um, when Walter finds out that the three people trying to kidnap or the three people who kidnapped the other Lebowski's wife are nihilists. It's like nihilists. Yeah. <laughs> Say what you will about the tenets of national <laughs> socialism. At least it's That's an ethos. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> So anyway, those are all the characters of the show, and I just have a few notes on some of the Fargo things I've noticed that I thought were interesting or funny or worth pointing out. So uh, this one could be a little controversial, but it's worth thinking about, at least putting into the culture, is that the very first scene of the very first episode, they're shooting a Western, right? And there's all these like dead Native Americans littered on the ground and they're waiting for Ronald Reagan to show up yeah. and uh, be the hero. And then one of the guys lying on the ground stands up full of arrows like, well, where are the, where is everybody? Yeah. <laughs> like, we need to do this. And the movie guy who's there to talk, they go through their whole rigmarole of his last lines like, I'm a Jew. Believe me, I know tribulation. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's funny. But it's it, it's something interesting to me, especially in the United States, where there's so many people who this applies to. What happens when there's an if you give grievance a currency? What about competition for grievance? Right, <laughs> right. So they could be swapped as stories, which is the positive light of it. I think of like bonding. But if they if a grievance story has currency, oh man, what are you gonna do when there's almost so much bandwidth and all these different groups, especially in the U.S., who have seen grievances kind of want that attention. Yeah. Like, that's just, it's a taboo thought. I know. So I'm just stating it plainly. Like, and it, it's not unheard of. I, I remember a story Coleman Hughes telling about how he was in a, it, there was tension between, on, on the campus he was on, between the Native American group and the African American group because they were vying for peak grievance right. for the majority of people. And that's dark. 
Yes. Like that can go to dark places real fast in terms of actually helping people who have been mistreated. <laughs> well, and doesn't it in a sense speak to on an individual level grievance just mm-hmm. like envy uh is one of the least like pick your vices a little bit better please. sure like if if the thing that you're gonna like why why pick something that's so and probably because it feels good right mm-hmm. there's an element of the victim mentality gives you a a, a place in the world Mm -hmm. a sense of permanence and a sense of meaning right Mm -hmm. especially in you know as Nietzsche said you know slave morality Mm -hmm. being what it is in western culture the idea you know that the weak shall inherit the meek shall inherit the earth the idea that uh you know that the weak are actually the strong it flips this whole idea Mm -hmm. of might makes right on its head but the polluted and perhaps corrupted version of that is that you're more valuable the worse things have been for you or or that you you <laughs> yeah. know soci- that society owes you something because something has happened mm-hmm. negatively to you. Well, I think probably what is really sad about this is that to make a currency out of grievance or victimhood robs people of understanding why those things are grievances or victims in the first place. So if you have currency in being a victim or having a grievance, if that alone is the value, then you don't have the same incentive to learn about why that's the case in the first place. So it's like you wouldn't even read as much about the history or you would read like, you know, Cole's notes version of it. It's like, it's not that there aren't horrible things that have happened and maybe even grievances to address or redress, but it's, it's knowing why and deeply why and what, would change and what could be a better tomorrow for those things as opposed to getting into the trenches against another group because then it's just more tribalism yeah right it's just more tribalism and that's not gonna help no i'm glad you brought it up earlier i loved the part where the judge tells the job story about herself because that's such a perfect fargoism yes which is a super smart character talking to a relatively unintelligent character about this really esoteric story in a funny accent. Yeah, <laughs> right. That is yeah. so Fargo. That is, yeah, that is re- that is like quintessential it's, Fargo. It's so funny when that <laughs> happens. There's always some super smart person littered throughout the Fargo universe. Talking to like talking. these functional idiots. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's so good. Here's an interesting one. The doctor, we talked about in the first part, when the doctor tells Betsy and Lou about the placebo, I'm like, it, it doesn't work if you know it's a placebo. No. Like, that's the whole point of a placebo. Why is the doctor even telling them that there could be a placebo in here? <laughs> yeah. And so there's an interesting parallel here, though, to the difference between believing, a lit- like having a literal belief of a truth and having a figurative belief in the truth of something. So I'm wondering, I don't know, like, can you have the same relationship and commitment to something if you think it's figuratively true but not literally true? I guess it depends on your definition of truth. Sure. Well, okay, so I love this. What does he call it? Brett, Brett Weinstein has this great idea he calls literally false, figuratively true, or metaphorically true. Right. And the example he gives is that uh, porcupines shoot their quills. Their quills out of their butts. Yeah. <laughs> so stay away from them. Now, that's literally false. Porcupines can't actually project their, their quills yeah, out. Quills. But it's 
metaphorically true in that it keeps you further away from porcupines, thus mitigating the amount of mistakes you might get of just actually hitting a porcupine right, with their yeah. claws, right? And he was giving the example of how this might work with kids, and it does. But then I was like, but would it work if the kids knew it wasn't literally true, even if they were being told it was? And I'm agnostic on this answer. I truly am, because I think it's really interesting, because more controversially but more to our lives i'm applying this also to like religion Mm -hmm. where it's like if my parents had told me growing up that we are christian or we go to church and the stories aren't literally true but there's like importance in them would i still have been motivated by that and my honest answer is i don't know i really don't know if i would have had the kind of conviction of belief i had if that had been the way that they had talked about it as it happens they talked about it like this is the truth this is what happened garden of eden moses etc historical fact and i know for sure that that helped my conviction yes (laughs) for it right but you don't know what it would have been like if what's the counterfactual experiment of saying this is metaphorically true literally false would i have had the same attachment to it well, and here's the other problem. As a kid, is distinguishing between the two something that actually happens, mm. right? Yeah. Because kids are far more literal mm-hmm. about the they, like to say that something metaphorically true is a is a pretty big concept. Sure. Yes. Right. And so I guess I'm like a critique I have of Jordan Peterson, and there's not a lot, but one that I do have is that a lot of his lectures about Christianity and the Bible and the stories and the resonance. I haven't really heard him address, at least in a, in a manner that tickles my fancy about the kind of, like, I think he has on board the assumption that everyone who goes to church knows that they're metaphorically important and at least agnostic on the literal part of it. Yeah, which is- and I was like, that's not true, Jordan <laughs> Peterson. Like, and, it, and, it, and, I don't, and the thing is, because of my agnosticism on the importance of this, I don't know how much rests on this. But again, I think to bring it back to Fargo, that example with the doctor pulls my intuition into the direction of, but you you can't tell people that their beliefs in something are even possibly not true, literally, right. without them doubting the whole edifice. But then my other intuition is like, but I've had a resurgence in my idea of the psychology of the stories of the Bible, so maybe you can. <laughs> right. Right? Like, I, I'm honestly torn between these two <laughs> intuitions here, which we probably won't solve in this. So it's something I guess I bring up to talk about in the future more. And then again, uh, one of my intellectual heroes, Thomas Paine, has a line, a mind once stretched by an idea can never return to its original form. So this is why Betsy can't forget that she might have a placebo. Right, right. (laughs) Right? You can't forget that once it's been told to you. So I have diverging intuitions on this point. So... Again, be, yeah, that's nothing solved to think here. about more, yeah. <laughs> but I think it's interesting. Yes. Like, I think it's super interesting, and doubly so personally because it was our lives, yeah. slash is still kind of in, <laughs> yeah. in one form or <laughs> in some another, ways, right? yeah. Okay, we can't not talk a little bit about the Reagan <laughs> part in this show, which is well, so, yeah, the play, the role so funny. Plays. His great political rhetoric, right? We shall be as a city on a hill, which I guess was like the That's from the Bible. Pilgrims and also the Pilgrims talked about it. Yeah. When they came to America. Okay. I believe an American can do anything. No answer to the but how part. But this was the part that I was just like what a great meditation on people who are out of touch. So Lou is telling him a little story 
or uh, he told him that he fought in Vietnam. Yeah. What does Reagan say? Oh, I was once in a movie where I was fighting the Nazis. <laughs> so like <laughs> yeah. in the same kind of Peggy sense, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> where Reagan's like, oh, you fought in Vietnam? Yeah, I was also in a movie once where I fought the Nazis. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> you just, the look on Lou's face. He's, he's like, <laughs> what? It's like, this is the person who's going to be president? <laughs> Never will we have a more crazy, less in touch with reality. <laughs> this is the this is the oh, bottom. This is the thing. It couldn't get any worse. <laughs> I just, I don't know, like, maybe that's the only, the, the only point to make there is just how out of touch Reagan was. <laughs> Well, at in least that, in, this, in that yeah, in that portrayal, it, it, right? Yeah, exactly. But it's like, can you imagine having <laughs> served in war? And, and then like, someone, yeah, saying, I was once an actor in a war movie. <laughs> yeah, it was so funny. It would really change your opinion of a person. But again, another great Fargoism. Yes, right. Like the just the, it's hard to you can't plumb the depths of the genius of the show where they have just this superficial layer of stupidity with these super deep themes happening at the same time. Exactly. Oh, it's, it's beautiful. It is. I would have to say, I want to give a little nod. This is a big Easter egg to someone like me or, or a, a Coen brother fan, because there's a few times on the radio, Simone is listening and the song just dropped in is playing. It's like, I just dropped in to see what condition my condition, condition was in. Yeah. Yeah. And anyway, this is this is the song that is playing during the surreal dream experience of the dude in the Big Lebowski. Right. <laughs> so right. it's such a wink and a nod to the Coen Brother fans. Right. <laughs> who <won't laughs> who are watching this. That super memorable scene from the Big Lebowski. <laughs> yeah. Listening to this song on the radio that Simone's listening to is so good. I think I mentioned before I enjoy the Fargoism of how the character's agitatedly repeating something over and over as if that was the point. Yes. <laughs> right? right. Yeah. They're like, especially Ed and Peggy will be like talking about something that is not what's being asked of them and just getting more agitated repeating it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So good. Just quickly, that South Dakota cop, another great example of the pettiness of the small tyrant. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You're outranked all sorts of ways here, Sonny. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, he's more interested in escorting Lou to the state line than he is in keeping Peggy and Ed safe. Yeah, well, Because he's it's like, his status on the line. Yeah. Okay. So that brings us to our very last point. UFO. Which is the aliens. So the aliens, we, we only see them twice in the show. They come at the beginning. They're what Rye is looking at in the sky when he gets hit by the car. And then <laughs> the line, do you remember when our gunfight was interrupted by spaceflight? And so the aliens show up at the big battle at the end. And it kind of saves Lou's life, actually. Yeah. Because Bear's about to kill him. And then Bear looks up and then Lou gets a gun and shoots Bear through the head. And I have an interpretation of this. Okay. Because um, I'm very confused by it. <laughs> I think... The aliens, who are obviously, in the greater lore of aliens, they represent intergalactic travelers and cosmic perspective, basically. And so I think that they help represent the cosmic insignificance of our battles with each other. And they provide the karma. (laughs) But it's like, with all all of the stupid things that are going on in the show, and yet there's these aliens flying around who are... I know, that that should... that That, to me, demonstrate... Again, perfectly the insignificance of all of these stupid little battles that everyone's having with each other. Right. Where they're dying. Right? Kurt Vonnegut has these great thought experiments. But like, imagine you were a Martian watching what we do. Yeah. Would it make any fucking sense to them? <laughs> right. Right? If they did, yeah. Do our motives make any sense? No. Yeah. Well, and the role in the plot that the aliens play, 
are giving Rye his just desserts and saving Lou's life. That's kind of what I mean as a funny like nod to cosmic karma, maybe. Yes. <laughs> right? Yes. Like the bad person getting what he deserves and the good person having mercy. But also, I just interpreted it as like all of this craziness is cosmically insignificant to a sufficiently advanced race. Right. So why can't we be that sufficiently advanced race? Like, think of all the tragedy avoided if we were the aliens. That's a good. That's a good <laughs> question mark. Yeah. So okay, I can I mean, get behind that because there's no actual reason. reason. The, no, no <laughs> the it's aliens like, what? are the show. They're they're. they're uh, insignificant to the plot it's like why why are you here yeah they're never there's no nothing addressed although there is the great conversation that lou and betsy have with hank near the end where about language yeah about language and bets and because that's well that's when they're talking about miscommunication is so terrible yeah yeah. because hank wanted to invent a new language that people could not miscommunicate and, and be more clear with each other and so yeah i don't know I, I don't think the aliens I mean there's no other way that they're in that show. I mean no. it but it's it's just it's kinda like it's also a little bit the showrunners just playing with the audience. Yeah, just being like, here, I'm gonna throw this in here. <laughs> yeah. You know, everything's I, so serious we, and we have made such a fucking brilliant show that we're gonna test the limits of just the absurdity we can get away with in a moment here. Yeah. <laughs> here we go. Okay. <laughs> we we have earned we have so earned the ability to be control our audience. Control our audience. Uh, but yeah, I, I like from a kind of wisdom standpoint, I interpret it as like look at just the cosmic insignificance of all of this like and 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 that's something that helps me. It's like, oh yeah. god. A sufficient enough distance from my problems helps me see them better. Yeah, and which ones I'll care about more actually in a in, in a long time frame, right? Yes. So, anyway, that's Fargo. That's it. We that's, did it. That's a. Uh, uh, I know it was we... really an enjoyable watch. I have to say that mm-hmm. if if you haven't watched and you've listened to us, I still recommend. Oh yeah, you'll get a lot out of it. This is just great television because what we do is you know we have our shtick about we talk about like the kind of ideas that come out of the show but more than a lot of other things the experience of watching this show is its own delight yes like there's an experiential joy that not every movie always has or every show that has good ideas in it mm-hmm. but this one the acting the accents the dialogue the writing the jokes oh it's just genius it's so much fun. Yeah, like, I like what you said. It's basically a flawless show. Yeah, it's not a per- I, like. I want to differentiate perfect from flawless, even though they should. Be There's the no same unforced thing. errors in this show. Yes. Yeah. There's like a few like, hmm, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Right. You don't have to suspend your disbelief at all, almost at all, and it's so funny. Like this is what's great about Fargo. It's a drama that's funny. Yeah. And you know? like and 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 laughs at itself. Mm-hmm. So please make sure you watch it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you for listening. This has been another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason, and I'm David Parker. And may the Fargo be with you. <laughs> <laughs>